Well, you know one of my standard greetings. How is your holy, righteous, deathless, totally righteous, perfectly loved self tonight? You doing all right? That's who you are. That's who you are. One of the reasons we gather together is to be reminded of where he is at, is to tell one another who he is, and to provide a safe place to bring our humanity in the midst of those great truths. So the truth himself can work himself into and out of us in ways that glorify God and edify and build up the body of Christ. Apart from that, we are not much different from any other self-help group. We are not here to help ourselves. We're here to say to God, help yourself to us. Help yourself to our bodies, help yourself to our souls, help yourself to every part of our spirits so that nothing less than the fullness of who you are in me can find your expression. We don't always hear that. We don't always get such a safe place to bring our humanity for that to happen. And so before we kind of sit together under the Spirit's teaching and the authority of God's Word together with the same heartbeat for Him, let's rise, let's speak truth to one another, and let's say this or however you want to phrase it, the righteousness of God sure looks good in you tonight. The holiness of God suits you just fine. You look like a totally forgiven self to me. Ain't it glorious? You catch my drift? Speaking the truth in love to one another so the truthful one himself can be himself in you and me? I'm not sure we ought to gather unless we're ready to do that to somebody. Hopefully you didn't come here just for you. (laughs) Spirit of God is in you. He is living to get out of you. Bless the other members of the family. Embrace those wherever they are on the journey of coming to know who He is, where He is, and the difference He can make in a human life. Celebrate that this weekend while you're here. Let's touch somebody else's joy button by speaking some truth to them. Let's take about two or three minutes. Whether you find somebody in the room that just looks like they need it, if you feel like you need it, just go to one of the corners and do this. Somebody will come to you and love on you for a minute, okay? If that's not where you are tonight, you go find somebody else and give that to. Speak a word of encouragement. Give the gift of God's acceptance that's been freely given to you. You don't have to know somebody to give them that, do you? All right, stand to do that to the glory of God for a minute or two. (laughs) No, there's not. (laughs) All right. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine, heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of His Spirit, washed in His blood. 
This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior. All right, all right. You ready to roll? Hey, I didn't come with uh, any wigs, even though I need one. I have no sunglasses or special effects. I don't come with any PhDs, THDs. I barely got here with my BVDs. But I'm excited about being with you this weekend and with Frank and the others. You're going to have a chance to share together what it means for Christ himself to be our lives. And that is an unending, eternal question, isn't it? All of eternity is not going to exhaust what it means to know who Jesus is and the difference He can make in a human creature that's trusting in Him. It's a question that in different forms I'm sure we all get. It's one of the most often asked questions I get from people all around the country They sometimes say, I've just led somebody to Jesus Christ. What should I do with them? (laughs) And here's a line I get on the heels of that, I'm sorry to say. I'm not going to take them to my church. It'll ruin them. I don't know about that. (laughs) Trust them to God. Have enough confidence in Jesus Christ to keep and bring to fruition everything that he started in that human being. They're not dependent on the context anyway. What do I tell them to read? And you know, people will often say, well, John's not a bad place to start, or Mark, or or one of the gospel stories. And I wouldn't argue with anybody who started there in their Christian journey, but it's not where I take people. 90% of the church that I pastor is under 25 and single. And so they come from all different parts of the world in a university community. And some of them, I I baptized a Chinese girl not too many years ago who said, until I came here six months ago, I had never heard the name Jesus Christ. She was 21. I said, what about your school? He's not in our history books. We don't talk about that. It's never come up. I didn't know anything about him. What do you tell somebody like that? Where do you take them? They've just put faith in Christ. I don't take them to John, I don't take them to Mark, I don't take them to Luke, and I again will not argue with anybody that does. I will take them to the Galatians and Ephesians and Colossians because I want them to start with what it means to be in Christ. You do understand Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts chapter 1 were all written under the law. Or they tell stories about the Messiah given under the law. I want people to start understanding fully what it means in grace. Not many church people who've been it all their lives know that Galatians and Ephesians and Colossians and Philippians were written maybe 20 years before most of the gospel stories were ever written. This is where the first century church started. They heard up front, this is what it means to be in Christ. 
This is what happens when Christ lives in you. And certainly, as some of the eyewitnesses were disappearing from this planet and going into the next realm of their eternal abode, that they love to get those accounts from the Matthews and the Marks and the Lukes and the Johns as the Holy Spirit inspired them to say. But I want a whole generation of college students and young people to be ruined for the gospel's sake. To not find themselves at home in anything less than the gracious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because once you are in the arena of being in Christ, everything is different. We're talking about a realm transfer. A relocation, if you will. A change of atmosphere. The air that we breathe, even though we don't know what's all in that air, the very air that we breathe is different. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Bob, we may have that one. That's not up there. That's all right. Um, in the New English Bible, it's written this way. We are swept up into a new world. When anyone is in Christ, And in parenthesis, it says there is a new world, but the there is isn't there. When anyone is in Christ, a new world. (laughs) And it's that immediate. And it's that permanent. And it's that complete. The old order has gone. A brand new order has come in that moment when Christ takes up residence in a human being. When we find ourselves at home in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. It has locational dimensions to it. All of a sudden, wherever we are present, Christ is. And you understand why the New Testament writers got so excited and joyful about hope. Because Christian hope is a passion for what's possible because of who's with us. doesn't have a thing to do with wishful thinking. It's a passion for what is possible because wherever I'm present, because I'm in Christ and Christ is in me, He's present where we are. In our very zip codes, in the dailiness of our lives, in the relationships that we find ourselves in. It has, re- re- it has locational dimensions. It has relational dimensions to it. To be in Christ is to be in relationship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. It's to be brought into the home of the one that we were made to dwell in before the very first let there be. There's an existential component to it. Our very beingness is changed. We are something. We are someone that was not previously there. Brand new creations in Christ. New creatures, not only in time, I'm different today than I was yesterday, but also different in type. I was a dead one yesterday. I'm a living one today. I was a separated one yesterday. I am one in fellowship and oneness with God today. I was a sinful one yesterday. I am a saintly one today. It has an actual dimension to it that you just can't fathom in the beginning. I mean, you know something's different. In fact, if we get all the way through till Sunday, we're going to figure something out. That the minute most of us believed in Jesus, you believed all the things we're going to talk about this weekend. Somebody had to talk you out of most of them. 
I thought all my sins were forgiven until I went every week and someone told me I had to get them forgiven all over again. I did. I thought, they, they really are forgiven. Let's try it again. There we go. And this being in Christ deals with every part of us. It has to do with our nature, who we are and what we have now in Jesus. It has to do with our behavior. It does. We do what we do because of who we are now. And so you will find passages in the New Testament of not only being in Christ, and every time we read in Christ, you get one of these glorious indicative statements that tells you something about you you would have never even dared ask God for in the first place. And then when you start reading about in the Lord, you realize you're not the boss of your own life anymore. It deals with being. It also deals with behavior. We're not defined by the behavior, but let's not think for a minute that we can put asunder what God has joined together. And we've got to always remember this union, this oneness that we love to talk about and sing about and celebrate together and tell each other about is not a union between equals. I didn't even get a oh my, let alone an amen. This is not an essential oneness. I do not become God. I am not absorbed into the divine. The disciple never becomes the teacher. The branch never becomes the vine. The creature doesn't ever become the uncreated being. There's always a dependency to this. There's always a a derivative nature to this. And we can't ever afford to forget that. We are the body of Christ, and that's a wonderfully glorious realization, but there is a head. And we find out who we are and how He lives His life through us under the authority of that head. So let's look at key thought number one tonight about this living in the arena of living oneness. Because it was so gloriously liberating to so many of you in this room and we intercede and pray in behalf of brothers and sisters who I do believe at their conversion grasped something of this but may have been talked out of it by voices that didn't come from God. But in Christ, all distance between God and me disappears. There are no gaps any longer. Religion needs gaps. But now there's no more separation. You can read something as simple and direct as 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17. That he who joins himself to the Lord becomes one spirit with Him. Nothing between us. No sins, no charge of the devil, no claim of the law. Not even space any longer. We read in the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17, verse 24, before He goes to the cross, enters the grave, is raised by the Father, ascends to His right hand, and reigns gloriously over all, this prayer by Jesus, that where I am, they may be also. And if the Father answered that prayer, everywhere that Jesus went from there, we told his disciples eyeball to eyeball, face to face, like you and I are looking and speaking right now. He told them very directly, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. And when I come back, don't think for a minute I'm going to bring you into that place. I'm going to bring you into myself. 
That kind of oneness. No gaps. I've mentioned it to you before, but I love the way Dame Julian of Norwich said it. Twixt God, there is no between. There's nothing between us. It's a gloriously liberating truth. So this in Christ is the starting point for all things that we would call Christian. Listen to Romans chapter 3, verse 24. Paul's working his way through this marvelous argument in the book of Romans. He comes to the place where he says, we were justified as a gift by God's grace through the redemption that is where? In Christ. That when you and I put faith in Christ, whether we understood it to be we get to go to heaven when we die, or God would at least forgive our sins up to date, that's better than what we had at that point in time. We lived under that guilt and under that shame. But we received the full redeeming activity, the saving activity of God in Jesus Christ. And it started dawning on us as we read the scriptures that... Every one of us, no matter how poorly we behaved or how well we behaved or whether we were wanted in our birth families or not wanted by our birth parents, that every single one of us were in Adam. And in Adam is New Testament code language for being outside of Christ. Separated from God. We were born that way. We didn't do anything and be cursed with that separation. We started life outside of Christ. In the tradition I grew up in, we just called it being lost. You may have heard of uh, being called un, being unsaved, but it didn't have anything to do with behavior. But when you solve the dilemma of separation, you have a gospel. You have good news. Don't solve the dilemma of separation. We don't have much of a gospel. I like the way Paul said it in the Ephesians, the 18th verse, that we were excluded from the life of God. You can't get any more blunt than that. That was the condition, the predicament we were in. And this lost person, this separated person, this unsaved person, this dead person is not already saved and just doesn't know it. A lot of people are teaching that today. This lost person, this dead person is not already saved and they just don't know it. A lot of people are teaching that today. That is not what the New Testament teaches. You don't need to believe you're already saved to be saved. We start by believing we are separated from God, excluded from the life of God, and there isn't a single thing we can do about it. And if God doesn't come and do the rescuing, the redeeming, the rectifying, we are helplessly, hopelessly, hell-boundedly lost forever. And what Jesus Christ came and did for every single one of us is not true of any of us until He takes up residence in us. And we can say, I am a child of God. With all that comes in that meaning of being a child of God. In our own way, we confessed we were sinful. We believed we were separated from God. And we are coming to learn that we were actually so bad off, God Himself couldn't save us. He had to kill us. He had to kill us. Adam life cannot breathe the air in Christ. 
The two are mutually exclusive. If you take a verse as simple as John 3.16, For God so loved the world that whosoever believes what? In Him. Little Greek preposition, ice. It means into. It means to be outside of, but to believe into or inside of. That very little preposition condemns every single one of us as separated from God. We weren't already inside of Jesus and just didn't know it. And God came and brought us into Himself by the grace of God and through our faith in the person of Jesus Christ. He transferred the work of Jesus Christ into us. And now we are moved into a new location in Christ. That's our residence. That's our abiding place. That's our name. That's our zip code. And John was so excited about it in the first chapter of John, the 12th verse. He said, to as many as received him, to them he gave them the right, the privilege of becoming the child of God. Someone is born of God. Someone who was not there before. We were, by the grace of God, relocated from in Adam to in Christ. But you can't be with one foot in one and one foot in the other at the same time. It's impossible. Yeah, that'll make you psychotic. But what's Paul saying in John chapter 1 verse 12? He's saying we become what we receive. Why would any of us say that we've been forgiven? We received the forgiver. I don't think a single one of us in this room would ever dare to say we were righteous apart from daring to believe we received the righteous one. We wouldn't call ourselves holy because of the way we acted this week. We would only call ourselves holy because we received the holy one. We become what we receive. We receive the deathless life of the Son of God, so we don't fear death any longer. Every single thing in Christ has to be freely received or you do without it. We freely received our forgiveness. We freely received our righteousness. We freely received our holiness. We freely received our saintliness. We freely received our deathlessness. Freely received. We didn't earn a single bit of it. How did that happen when we were born from above? In our first or physical birth, in Adam, we received Adam life. And we've been making a case for the fact that Adam life cannot be taken into Christ. It has to be crucified. It has to be killed. It has to be buried. And in our second birth, born from above, born again, born anew, translated any way you want, it means the same thing. We were fathered by the Holy Spirit, receiving the nature of God, the righteous, holy life of God into our human spirits. Now you understand why Paul would say, if any man is in Christ, a new world! a new creature, a new creation. A whole new order of things have come. The old things, what we were, what used to be true of us, our history in Adam has come to an end. All of those Adam things, 
Whatever was true of a person outside of Christ. And there are tons of those things in the New Testament. Now listen, what makes the good news good news is the presence or possibility of bad news. And it is bad news when you read what a human being is in Adam. We were ungodly. We were sinful. We were hostile to God. We were excluded. We were condemned. Paul says, you weren't just in the darkness. Don't think you didn't have a clue. You were darkness. You were darkness. That history ended when we died with Christ. And now our history in Christ has begun. This is who we are. That's what's true of us now. We are godly ones, righteous ones, those at peace with God, accepted by God, justified by God. We're not just in the light. We're not going to the light. God says in Ephesians 5, you are the light. You are light now. Excuse me, not the light. He's the light. You are light now. Because the light of the world lives in you. This is why we celebrate our fullness, our completion in Christ. I think every one of us knows this and every evangelical church in our country believes this, that whatever is in Christ is pleasing to God. Everything that is in Christ is pleasing to God. Would somebody tell me where you are tonight? Now, will you dare say you're pleasing to God? What do you want? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And I don't care if you give it a quiet, humble, joyful, or a dancing in the aisles, hallelujah. It's a hallelujah. Hallelujah. No more separation, no more distance. Key thought number two. To be in Christ is to be in His relationship to all. I'll never forget the first time I read those words in Revelation. Revelation, very often. I must have been skimming through looking for something out of desperation. But I was reading Revelation, came to verse chapter 21, verse 5, where Jesus Himself is speaking. King Jesus, Lord of Lords, King of Kings, reigner and ruler of the universe. And He said, Behold, here's that word again, stop, take notice. I am making all things new. And I remember that took my breath away. Everything, every single thing, all things. When we're in Christ, we have entered into the realm of recreation. God is recreating, making everything new. To who? To as many as received Him. Again, more than we would have thought to ask for. I just want my sins forgiven. How about you? I did not want to give get left behind. I'd sat in too many Baptist parking lots on Sunday night watching those crazy movies about getting left behind. I did not want to be left behind. Please, Jesus, don't leave me behind. Please, don't leave me behind. Please. That's all I asked for. Isn't God's grace amazing how He meets us? I never, ever would have dared said, make me righteous. <laughs> never occurred to me. Hey, I want to be holy tomorrow. I would have never dared say that. You understand why Paul says more than you would have ever thought to ask God for, more than you can imagine. 
I would have never said, Jesus, would you give me whatever your relationship is to sin? You think I could have the relationship you have with the Father? What about that relationship that you have to the devil? You came to destroy his works. Could I have that relationship? I would have never thought. I would have never thought. Listen, this is extremely personal. He didn't give us something called the Christian life. He didn't give us something called new life. He gave us his life. That's why Paul makes the point in the 6th chapter of Romans, the death that he died, he died to sin. The life that he lives, he lives to God. So consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. His relationship to that thing is your relationship to that thing. That's the new world we're in when we're in Christ. It's not the same old, same old. Membership does have its privileges. If you and I had been born into the Rockefeller family, we would have had no problems being included in the achievements of others, would you? You probably would have claimed it as a birthright, as an heir. Listen, our membership in Christ has privileges that go beyond anything you can imagine. Claim your birthright. You're an heir of the Father. A joint heir with the Son. You get it? A joint heir with the Son. What His relationship is to a thing is my relationship to that thing. How did that happen? We received Him. We received a full supply of His life. John chapter 1 verse 16. Of His fullness we have all received. That is the confession of the entire congregation. We have mistakenly led people to believe somehow or another that is the prerogative or the privilege of a specially enlightened few. Of His fullness we have all received. Try that for a call to worship Sunday wherever you gather. That'll make you want to worship. You won't need a pep rally for the soul. Sing the same chorus 17 times to get the soul moved. You're not going to need ushers. You're going to need sergeant at arms. You're going to have to hand out seatbelts and hard hats at your church. Of your fullness, we've all received. Complete in Christ. A fixed, eternal, and internal union. And it has nothing to do with our performance. It's a full supply of His life, a full supply of His nature, a full supply of His character. Why? Because it's not the performance that determines nature, it's the parent. I've met a lot of dogs that think they're people. And I have met some people who act like dogs. But dogs are dogs. Why? Their father is a dog. And people are people. Why? Their father is a people. Do you know who your father is? That determines your nature, your character, your identity. Again, we said it early, all of eternity is not going to exhaust that. 
We're not going to figure all that out. You've got forever to figure it out. You don't even have to get into a hurry about figuring it out. If of His fullness we've all received and we start complete in Christ, then we've already received a corresponding supply of God's nature for any contingency that we find ourselves in. We may not always know how to lay hold of it. There may be even some days when we know it and we say, I ain't going there today. Forgiveness for these people is too good. And you just choose to be resentful all day. You're free to make that choice. But it doesn't change the fact that there's an infinite forgiver living inside of you that you and I may draw from in any moment. In Christ, His relationship to all things. This is where we find the answer to legalism, to asceticism, to disconnected mysticism, any other man-made ism you come up with. The full supply of everything God intended for a human being to have to be a human being is in Christ. We find ourselves in Him. Boy, that's what makes us solid, real. That's what makes it personal. It begins to dawn on us what Paul was getting at in the middle of Romans when he said we're already justified and we're already sanctified and we're already glorified. Because all three of those, the justifier, the sanctifier, the glorifier, was given to us the moment we put faith in Christ. We've been led to believe those are sequential, right? You get justified. By grace, through faith. You don't get a whole lot of argument from that. Some, but not a lot. And you're supposed to spend the rest of your time on earth trying really hard to get sanctified. And hang on till you die so you can get glorified someday. Justification, sanctification, and glorification are not sequential. They are simultaneous. A new realm... A new order, a new world. Justified, sanctified, glorified. Those are the results of being in Christ. Jesus lived a just and justifying life. He's the justifier. He lived a holy and holifying life. He lived a glorious and glorifying life. And where is He? He's in my human spirit and yours. The only reason we would ever say we're justified or sanctified or glorified. Let's wrap it up by looking at a few of those verses that point us to that direction and see how the Spirit would speak to us. In Romans chapter 3, verse 24, we read it earlier. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. You find the same thing in the second chapter of Galatians. We have been justified. Why do we start here? Because whatever can't justify you can't sanctify you. If you were not justified by keeping laws, you will never be sanctified by keeping laws. If you were not justified by good behavior, you will not be sanctified by changing your behavior. It takes a justifier, a sanctifier, and it's all a gift. It's all of grace all the time. 
Romans chapter 5 verse 18. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, there we are in Adam, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. Listen, justification by faith is not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a result of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the result of putting our faith in that justifier. It's not merely a legal matter. It's a living relationship with the justified one. It's not a matter of getting a record changed or a mere declaration. The justifier himself lives in us. Think about it for a minute. If any part of our justification could be done by human works, it could be undone by human works. No, it's done once and forever, fully and completely and perfectly by the justifier. This is the righteousness of God that we read about in Romans chapter 3. The righteousness that belongs to God, the righteousness that comes from God. The only righteousness acceptable to God is the righteousness of God. It's not a single thing that we could ever generate on our own. Yes, there's a judicial dimension to it because the sacrifice of the Messiah was perfect. And there is, because of His voluntary and sinless life, a penalty able to be paid for our unrighteousness. And our guilt can be forgiven. But even more so, it's relational. We share in the righteousness that exists between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. We receive the very righteousness of God. That means the curse of separation is dealt a death blow. There's a finished righteousness. There's a righteousness of being. That's why Jesus looked at His disciples and said to them about the most religious people they knew, the best performers of the land, unless your righteousness exceeds their righteousness, you don't have a chance. And they're going, we don't have a chance. Theirs was a righteousness of doing. A righteousness of being always trumps a righteousness of doing. So unless you exceed that by receiving as a gift a righteousness of being, you don't stand a chance, Jesus is saying. It was meant to jerk that proverbial religious rug out from underneath any one of us who thinks we can merit the favor of God. There may be some form of objective imputation, but you are not proclaiming the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ until you come to a personal impartation of the righteousness of God into the human spirit. We don't believe in a as-if kind of theology. You know, you didn't really get you didn't really get righteous. You're going to get that when you die someday. You didn't really get righteousness. Your name got changed from one column in the books of heaven to the other column, but you didn't really get that. Now, we want you to go out real all week and work real hard and try to be righteous. That is one of the cruelest things I think you can tell somebody who's seeking hard after God. We don't tell them that because we don't tell them I know you really can't jump off buildings, but go act like you can this week. They put you in jail for that. 
No, we receive the righteousness of God. There's where our justification comes from. We receive the life of Jesus Christ, right? I mean, I was told that. I was told, you received Jesus into your heart, Steve, when you confessed Him as Savior and Lord. And I was really grateful of that. Well, let me ask you a question. Is a righteous life? And you received the righteousness of God, didn't you? Not a little piece of it. Not part of it. It's not waiting for a, in a bank account in the heavenlies somewhere. It was made as a personal deposit into your human spirit. In Christ. Justified. It's a good thing. Because you can get your sins forgiven and go to church. And they're going to tell you now you've got to try to be like Jesus. You do understand this, don't you? You know a sinner can never be like Jesus. We hear every week we're sent to save by grace. Go be like Jesus. Sinners can't be like Jesus. Only the righteous can be like Jesus. Listen, this is why Paul had a gospel. We were also sanctified in Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 2 is just one verse among scores that speak about our saintliness. And I love to pick this one out where Paul writes to the church at Corinth, which is meeting in Corinth. He says to them these exact words, to those who have been sanctified in Christ. And we all know they weren't the best performers in the land. People tell me, oh, I want to be a part of a first century church. Which one you want? Galatia, Corinth? All the stuff that went on there. The holy ones. The sanctified ones. How did that happen? Because they prayed harder than the Ephesians? They got baptized with the Holy Ghost because the baptism in Christ wasn't enough. And they got the second blessing because the first blessing wasn't enough. What an insult to Christ. They did not get sanctified because they prayed harder than the other churches or because they got the second blessing or because they cleaned up their act and lived better than the Galatians. They have been sanctified for one and one reason only. They're in Christ. In the sanctifier. The holifier, the Holy One lives in them. How did that happen? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. By His doing. By His doing. By the One who became to us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification. He became our sanctification. It was a work accomplished for us. It is graced into us by Jesus Christ, the personal agent of God, the sanctifier Himself. In other words, we would say we are sanctified in Christ. Why? Because His is a sanctified life. We received a sanctified life. Why is that good news? Because only saints can be like Jesus. Only holy ones can be made into the image of Jesus Christ. Listen, nothing but God's holy by nature. And the only thing, the way a thing is ever made holy is by association with Him. That was true even in the Old Testament. A cup was holy because it belonged to God. 
It wasn't any different than any other cup. It was made by the same person, the same person, but it was holy because it belonged to God. We are sons and daughters of the Most High God. We are holy by association. We'd love to talk about being guilty by association. Go back home and start talking about being holy by association. I'm holy by association. I've got a oneness with the sanctifier, with the holy one. All holiness is derived from God Himself. Holiness is never worked up. Holiness is only sent down. It's only freely received. In the holifier, everything we need to be sanctified, the very Holy Spirit of Christ is grace to us in Him. Let me ask you again, did you receive Jesus Christ? Yes, you did. Is He holy? Then you are holy. The Holy One lives in you. Final point. We're glorified in Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, excuse me, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. To this end, we pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire. You know, it's just implicit. The desire is already in you. That He will fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ will be glorified in you and you, where? In Him. In Him. An amazing thought. That in the glorifying of the redeemed, the Redeemer is glorified. That's what He just said. In glorifying the redeemed ones, the Redeemer is glorified. He gets the glory, right? An amazing thought. An amazing, liberating truth. You go back to Romans chapter 8, verse 30, you find a similar idea. I think Romans 8, chapter 30, is one of the most bodacious statements in the entire Bible. Those whom He predestined, He called. Those whom He called, He justified. Those whom He justified, He has also glorified. A one-time, never-to-be-repeated event. It's already happened. That whole idea of the word glory has this connotation of honor and dignity and exaltation. It means something that's got such weight, such substance, such reality, it's got to be dealt with. You can't overlook it. It has to be acknowledged. None of this glory belonged to us in our original birth condition. None of us outside of Christ has this glory. In fact, Paul says in Romans 3.23, every single one of us falls short of that glory, right? I mean, we tried. We tried like archers trying to pull back an arrow and hit the sun, and every arrow fell short, didn't it? We all fell short of that kind of weight, that kind of substance, that kind of reality. And the sad part is that describes so much of what goes on in religious communities. 
So much emptiness, so much wispiness, so much etherealness that you can walk by motion detectors and the things don't go off. Man, it wasn't that way when Jesus walked into a room, was it? When He strolled into a town. When He came into Saul of Tarsus. Glory! There is glory where the Lord is. Unbelievable thought. Most of the time in the Bible, this word's used of God and it does speak of the radiance and the personal nature of God. The very last Adam, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, was full of this glory. James, John chapter 1 verse 14. We beheld His glory. The fullness of God's glory dwelt in Him. So to receive Jesus is to be full of God's glory. Did anybody ever say to you, you're full of it? You can say, well, as a matter of fact, I am. Yes, I am. Thank you for reminding me of that. I'm full of it. The glorious one lives in you and me. And to be glorified is to freely receive what God meant us to be before the foundation of the world. So it means to be redeemed, but more than redeemed. And restored, but more than restored. And rectified, put back on the course that God meant before the very first This is when Colossians chapter 1 verse 27 starts to make sense. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Christ Himself is the substance. It's His glorifying life that gives weight, gives dignity, gives reality, gives the substantialness to who we are as children of God. In Christ we need nothing more to be glorified. You receive Jesus, right? Is His a glorious life? Is it a glorifying life? That's why you're already glorified. That's why we understand we can say in Romans 8.30, whatever can't justify you, can't sanctify you. Whatever can't justify you, can't glorify you. It's not my death that glorifies me, so I'm not waiting to die and get to heaven to experience the glory of God. This is what it means to be in Jesus. We receive His glorious life. Obviously, there's a full consummation awaiting the receptivity of our crucified bodies. That's the subject for another day. I'll preach it at your funeral. I promise. But we're not waiting upon death to be glorified. Only the glorious can be like Jesus, right? You can't make a sinner like Jesus. You can't make the unholy like Jesus. You can't make the non-glorious like Jesus. Only the righteous ones, only the holy ones, only the glorified ones can be made into the fullness of the image of God in Christ. And we start there. We start complete. 
So to be justified, sanctified, to be glorified is not sequential. It's simultaneous when we are placed in Christ. We're learning to live from that place. We're learning to let the justifier, the sanctifier, the glorious one live his life as us. Stepping into that fullness that belongs to us as the children of God. All in one act, all in one work, all in one person, Jesus Christ, the justifier, the sanctifier, the glorifier in you and me. Why does that matter so much? Why have we started talking about that tonight? Because without the need to be self-conscious. You know, self-justifying people are always self-conscious. Self-sanctifying people have to get confirmation from other people. The glory of a Pharisee was in the opinion of his fellow Pharisees. It's pure self-consciousness. Obviously, if I'm trying to draw attention to myself, I'm conscious of myself, right? But if I dare to believe I'm already justified, I'm already sanctified, I'm already glorified, then the heavy burden of trying to justify myself and sanctify myself and glorify my Savior is cast aside and the life of the Son of God is free to live Himself through you and me. Takes away all the gaps. Takes away all the distance. We could give a hundred testimonies in this room, because some of us have more than one about it. About how there's no rest in trying to make the unrighteous righteous. You never relax if you think you're unholy and you're trying to become holy. You can't afford to let your guard down. There is no joy in hanging on until you die to glorify God. It is in Christ. All the rest, all the relaxation, all the joy you and I will ever need in one person, in one place, in Christ. And so are we. In Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much that You have determined and made known to us not only what we need, but You have made the provision. You have been our source. You have made it a gift of Your amazing grace. Thank You for reminding us already tonight of who You are and where You are. Thank You for making Yourself known as a justifier, a sanctifier, a glorifier. And may we increasingly shed those man-made burdens of justifying and defending ourselves, and holifying and making ourselves more like You, and working really hard to behave in such a way that would be glorifying. Father, let my brothers and sisters step into the easy burden of pleasing You as the life of Your Son who always lives to please You as His way in us. We pray in Christ's name.